Welcome, I'm Father Mitch Packwell, and welcome to Scripture and Tradition, where we take a look at the Word of God through the lens of sacred tradition. That is, the tradition that goes back to the apostles who received it from Jesus our Lord. And we especially are focusing on how to pray with Scripture. That's our main focus here. Now, of course, we'd love to have you be part of the program. You can do that by joining us here in our studio audience, like these nice people have done. And you can also do so by calling us. If you are in North America, you can call 1-800-221-9460. 1-800-221-9460. If you are outside North America, you can't use that number, but you can call country code 1, area code 205-271-2988. You can also send us questions or comments uh, by email, writing to scripture and tradition at EWTN.com. Or you can follow us and participate with the show on Facebook and YouTube. Now today we'll discuss a bit of our Lord's reasons for his secrecy, the secrecy of Christ's mission. And we'll also look at the second feeding of a crowd, which is the feeding of 4,000 people on the east side of the Sea of Galilee in the Gospel of Mark. Now, we're still going through my book called Praying the Gospels, Jesus' Miracles in Galilee, which you can still get by going to EWTNRC.com, EWTNRC.com. It is item number 52885, 52885. All right, so let's first of all begin uh, toward the end of chapter 7 in Mark's gospel. We'll begin with verses 36 and 37, where Jesus ordered them to tell no one, but the more he ordered them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. They were astounded beyond measure, saying, he has done everything well. He even makes the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. So this is the response that they have after the man who was mute and deaf was healed by our Lord. And we took a look at that last week. Um, he said basically the same thing after he healed the leper in Mark chapter 1, verses 40 to 45. And he tells people to keep the miracle to themselves. So why is that? Matter of fact, he also uh, silences demons and many others. So why is that? There are two aspects that we should consider, and this would be something to pray about. First, we see a clue to understanding the secrecy in Matthew chapter 12, verses 17 to 21, where it says, this was to fulfill 
what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not wrangle or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Now, this is something that our Lord made very clear. Uh, it's part of his own diffidence, his own humility here, that he's not trying to get notoriety. He truly is exemplifying what he had said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 29. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Our Lord is gentle and humble. And this is a very important part of why he silences people. He's not saying, all right, let's get some lights up here, make sure that, is that a good angle for me? Is that my good side? No, he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. This is very much the humility that he exemplifies. One that we're to learn from, and we should meditate upon that. Secondly, Jesus silences witnesses to his miracles because his mission is not primarily about miracles. That's not the main purpose. Now, there are some people who try to make their life about signs and wonders and miracles. They try to make that the uh, main point. Um, our Lord wasn't one of them. Uh, there was, um, I think it was uh, Apollodorus of Tyana who was very well known for his miracles uh, in the first century. But, it, it's, but you may hear about him every so often. Sometimes you'll hear people say that, um, well, uh, Apollodorus of Tyana was a great miracle worker like Jesus. This was just what people did. Let me just make a little point here. Nobody wrote about Apollodorus of Tyana until around the year 200 A.D. So it was about 130 years after his passing away that people started using him as an example of a pagan miracle worker that's like Jesus. And it may well be that these are stories that were brought up, some might even say made up, a long time afterwards because Christians were getting such notoriety. So many people were joining the Christian faith and leaving paganism. And this was an attempt to try to, wait a minute, uh, we heard about this pagan guy that did some miracles. Uh, yeah, yeah, over from Tyana, which is in modern Turkey. But nobody heard of him before that. 
And you get a little suspicious that nobody, that you didn't have followers and such as that. So I, I wouldn't push that too much. Matter of fact, I don't. But even if he did some of these, our Lord doesn't make miracles the main point of his mission. And his role as Messiah is not to go around just healing. These are signs. And it's just as with his exorcisms, understanding him as the Son of God because of the exorcisms is not sufficient. He silences everybody who calls him the Son of God and he commands people to be silent about his miracles and his exorcisms. There is only one person in the whole Gospel of St. Mark who calls Jesus the Son of God and is not silenced. In all the Gospel, one person is recorded as identifying Jesus as the Son of God and he's not silenced. And this also applies to the other Gospels. It was as he had died, he already had died, and the centurion speaks up and says, truly this one was the Son of God. That's recorded in Matthew 27, verse 54, and in Mark 15, verse 39. The centurion is the only one who is not silenced for calling Jesus the Son of God. And this goes more to the core of the secrecy. You cannot primarily understand our Lord Jesus through the miracles and exorcisms. You can only truly understand him on the cross. The cross is what is essential. This is why he came to earth. And his death is the meaning of being the Messiah because it is only through his death that he then does the greatest of all miracles, which is rising from the dead. So it's good to heal the deaf man and mute man, but it's not the essence of salvation. Eventually they would die. They did. The people that he even raised up, you know, resuscitated from the dead, the Jairus' daughter and the widow of Nain's son and Lazarus, they all died later on. But our Lord sets as the priority of his mission, his death on the cross, because that is how he wins eternal life for all those who believe in him. This is essential. This is where our sins are forgiven. On the cross, he pays the price for our sins. The miracles don't do that. They could have. They could have done it differently. But that's not the point. The point is that he died to take the punishment of death that is due to sin. And because he was innocent of all sin, he was like us in all things except sin. And by taking sin on himself and dying on the cross, 
sin dies with him. And the curse of sin dies with him. And then he rises from the dead and gives us new life. What would be a good thing to do is, in your prayer over this passage, address our Lord, speak to him. Speak to him about what his gentle humility means. That would he call you to be quiet and gentle in the same way that he was and accomplish the mission that he gives you quietly and gently. He gives every one of us a mission. How do we go about it? And we need to look to him and understand how we ought to live out our mission as he did. Then secondly, it would also be good another time of prayer to talk to our Lord about the priorities of his mission. Ask our Lord Jesus to deepen your understanding of the importance of the cross. This is Lent we're going on right now, and we're moving towards uh, Holy Week. And it would be good for you to understand this salvation that he won for you, for me, for the whole human race by dying for our sins, and that we recognize the full truth of him being the God, the Son, by his death on the cross. What does that mean? How well do you understand that? A lot of people really don't pay attention to the meaning of his saving death and why he died for us. Speak to him about the role of miracles and exorcisms during his mission and how it's good uh, to do all that. But more importantly, speak to him about the role of his saving death. And this would be a good thing to do. And then conclude by praying the prayer, soul of Christ, sanctify me, body of Christ, save me, blood of Christ, inebriate me, water from the side of Christ, wash me. Remembering that his body saves because it died. His blood was shed on the cross as was the water that purifies us. That came also from his pierced side. To remember that and reflect on the power and the meaning of his death, this would be a good thing. All right, we're going to take a little break. We'll come back in just a couple of minutes with the next, the second feeding of a crowd with loaves and fish. So please stay with us.
just want to mention to you um, that I'm still planning on leading a pilgrimage to Poland. We will be going in the footsteps of Polish saints, May 8th to 18th. If you are interested in joining us, uh, please go to mateotravel.com, M-A-T-T-E-O, mateotravel.com. We'll be going to a lot, number of uh, really wonderful places, the Calvaria, uh, which is a monastery that has beautiful stations of the cross. The, we'll go, of course, to Auschwitz, to Auschwitz uh, the Church of St. Anne in Abahuta, the uh, martyrdom of St. Stanislaus, uh, the bishop and martyr, uh, in Kraków, Poland. We'll go to Wagiewniki and the International Shrine of Divine Mercy. And of course, Częstochowa and Warsaw. We'll see the tombs of blessed primate uh, Tomasz Wyszynski and the martyr Jerzy Popiewuszko. Uh, so, uh, plus a lot of other things too. Uh, it's a wonderful, I've been to Poland, you know, three other times and uh, visiting family and doing some work there. And I just love it. So, if you want to join us, go to MateoTravel.com and we'll be happy to have you join us. All right, we are now taking a look at a second multiplication of loaves and fish. A lot of times people conflate the two. Um, in the Gospel of John, you see only one of them mentioned, but in fact, there were two feedings. One was on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, where Jewish people lived. The second is on the east side, which was a Gentile area. So that's, that's going to be part of the clue as to why there are two of them. Let's begin with verses 8 to 5. Uh, excuse me, chapter 8, verses 1 to 5. In those days when there was again a great cloud, crowd without anything to eat, he called his disciples and said to them, I have compassion for the crowd because they have been with me now for three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from a great distance. His disciples replied, how can one feed these people with bread here in the desert? He asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. So, remember the first one was five loaves. This one is seven. One of, one of the other differences. We'll see a couple other ones as well. So, if you recall, our Lord had gone to the area of southern Lebanon, around Tyre and Sidon. He exercised the daughter of the uh, Syrophoenician woman. And then he healed the deaf man, still in that territory of Lebanon, and then kept going east over to the east side of the Sea of Galilee. And the part of the purpose of this was to avoid trouble that was brewing with the Pharisees and the followers of King Herod. So the Herodians and the uh, Pharisees were threatening to try and kill him. 
So he wasn't going to die up in the north. He was going to die in Jerusalem. So that, that, that's why he stayed away. And this is Gentile territory. Lebanon, of course, was Phoenician. You know, that's who lived up there. Lives still Phoenician, descendants of Phoenicians that are from there. And these folks from there and also to the east of the Sea of Galilee, there are lots and lots of uh, Gentiles there, mostly pagans. And they heard about the different healings and they gathered to him. They also heard all that news and uh, about the miracle and they wanted to be close and find out more. Despite his desire to keep it secret, they wouldn't do it. They wouldn't keep it secret. So his teaching was also very attractive. And a lot of people gathered to hear him speak. Now that still goes on. There have been lots and lots of people uh, to whom people flock to hear them. So this is uh, uh, something that happened here. Now, after listening to him uh, speak and teach them, he is the one who initiates the concern for the crowd. Remember in uh, Matthew, excuse me, in Mark chapter 6, the disciples were the ones saying, now, we, where are we going to find food for all these people? Send them home. And they had started the discussion. Here, Jesus called the disciples to him uh, privately because he has compassion for these people in their hunger. So he's uh, also concerned that some of them have come from so far. And, uh, and it is, especially when you get to the area east of the Jordan, uh, east of, uh, well, east of the Jordan River, but also east of uh, the Sea of Galilee, it is, you know, can be fairly arid. It can be pretty arid over there. Um, and, you know, finding places to eat would not be easy. Uh, they didn't have fast food joints. You know, not there anyway. They had them in Rome and the big cities, but not out in the countryside. So this is the, the issue. Now, in response, the disciples can only see the dilemma. Now, where are we going to get all the, the food for these people? They focus on what is impossible. That's their focus. That's what they see. And they ask to, to, to show how impossible it is, they ask a rhetorical question. How can one feed so many people? Now, it's a rhetorical question because the answer is you can't. You can't. And this is somewhat odd because just a couple chapters earlier, our Lord had fed even more people. There were 5,000 at that first feeding. So you start to get a sense that the apostles really are not too quick on the uptake. They don't really get it. You know, they, they saw our Lord 
multiply loaves and fish already. And oh, how can this happen? They can't see how it could happen. And certainly not again. So our Lord is the one who replies to their question. Not with, well, I guess it is impossible. Just can't work. Nothing you can do about it. No, that's not how he responds, is it? Instead, he wants to see what is possible. And here he says, how many loaves do you have? That's his question. He's looking for the possibility. And he doesn't think about what is impossible, but what is possible. And uh, in chapter 8, verse 7 of this same text, he adds a little later on that they had a few small fish. So that's seven loaves and a few small fish. Uh, this is significant, actually, because on the west side, they use, uh, they, they had larger fish. And this really fits the environment. Uh, it, I can, you know, remember some of my teachers not really commenting on this because they, they didn't really know the environment of the Sea of Galilee that well, especially in terms of the fishing. But on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, there are some hot springs and warm springs that flow into the water. Remember, uh, something I, I'm pretty sure I've mentioned, this, the Jordan Valley and the Sea of Galilee are all part of an enormous fault line. It's enormous. The fault line goes from the north, uh, right where Lebanon, Syria, and Israel meet in the modern maps. So right where the three of them meet, there's a mountain up there, and the fault line starts there, and it goes all the way down to the Gulf of Aqaba. So the Jordan Valley is part of it, the Dead Sea is part of it, the Arabah Desert is part of it, goes into the uh, Gulf of Aqaba, and, which is on the east side of the Sinai Peninsula, and it continues into the Red Sea, goes all the way down to Kenya, and then it returns to land in Africa in the Olduvai Gorge. The Olduvai Gorge is in Kenya, and in fact, that's where they have found most of the oldest hominid bones, you know, the earliest bones of humanity. They found them there in the Olduvai Gorge. So this big crack is there. And what does that mean? That there, when there's a crack like that in the tectonic plate, you have a lot of volcanoes, and there are, you see, they're extinct now, but you see the remains of lots and lots of volcanoes all through that region. You know, the Horns of Hattin, where the Crusaders lost a battle to Saladin. All of that, and there are other volcanoes, volcanic stone everywhere, 
And the hot magma from the center of the earth is close enough to the surface and this crack that water that seeps down boils back up and comes out as hot springs. And that water warms the western side of the Sea of Galilee. And that's where St. Peter's fish is caught. It's a semi-tropical bass. But on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, the water is cooler. And on that side of the lake, they have sardines. That's what's naturally there, sardines. It's a smaller fish. You don't even have to debone them when you, when you uh, fry them up. You just eat them whole. Just, just swallow them up because they're just, the bones are no big deal. Um, that's what they're, the small fish that they're talking about. And the reason I go into all this, every so often you'll have people who say, well, the Gospels were all made up by some people later on. Actually, no. The Gospels are very true to the environment and to the situation there. What we see in the Gospel fits that environment. If they were talking about catching sardines on the west side, I said, mm, they don't know what they're talking about, but they know what they're talking about. And we'll see this next week too because um, even the words for baskets is different for the two sides. When they collect the fragments into the baskets on the west side, it's a wide weave basket, a coffee nuss, because they're big fish. On the east side, it's narrow weave baskets, peridion, because they catch small fish. Little details showing that the evangelists were being very faithful to what they had received. And this is something that is part of the situation. Now, it's good for us to reflect in our own prayer on this. When we come to Jesus and we have tough situations, we can either focus Oh, this is impossible. I don't How can this possibly happen? Or you can see the, some little fish here and some little bits of bread and that this is, we'll see, look to what we have as a possibility. I, I, I loved, you know, listening to Mother Angelica's stories in the early days, how she did not wait until she had millions of dollars to start EWTN. She had $200, and she put the convent up as collateral. And the bankers didn't want the collateral because they were afraid if they foreclosed, they'd be laughed at. And she just said, you make bad deals all the time. So you just trust Jesus, and I'm going to do the same. Now, there are a number of times when she said, boy, I trust Jesus, but my stomach sure doesn't know it. You know, <laughs> but she, you know, she would look like Jesus at the possibility, not say, oh, it can't happen. Oh, it's, it's all doomed. It's all doomed. It's all over. The end is here. 
That's not, that wasn't her approach. That wasn't our Lord's approach. And we have to ask ourselves before him, is this what we want? Do we want to trust Jesus? Or do we want to point out what is impossible for us? This is a question. We'll continue with this episode next week. So return then and we'll find out more about what happened. I'd like to go to some of your questions at this point. I'm going to start off with Olga in Houston. It says, Hello, Father Mitch. My last <coughs> confession left me sad and confused. After confessing that I've criticized the Pope, my priest said that the Pope never makes mistakes. I know that the Pope is only infallible when it comes to matters of faith and morals. And that's true. Is, the pope, is a pope liable to make mistakes or sin as any other human? Is it right for me to say I will never go to confession with that priest? Is it okay to disagree with the Pope Francis or any pope? Olga in Houston. Well, Olga, I don't know about not going to that priest, um, but you are more correct than he. The pope's infallibility only applies to teaching on faith and morals. Secondly, it only applies when he is speaking to the whole church. He can even make a, an error regarding a moral situation with a particular individual. If the individual get, it gives him advice, it can be theoretically wrong. I'm not saying that he did something that I know of. I, I don't. But I'm just saying he theoretically, he can make a mistake in regard to an individual. So he, he's, his infallibility only applies when he is speaking to the whole church about faith and morals. And the third thing, he has to explicitly say that he is speaking uh, infallibly. He can't just sort of say, ah, you know, I feel kind of infallible today. Let me try something. No, 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 no. And in the uh, infallible statements made by popes, um, most people point to Pope Pius IX in his decree of the Immaculate Conception in 1854, I believe it was, and then to um, Pope Pius XII in his decree on the assumption of Our Lady, bodily assumption. That was something when uh, he was able to uh, uh, say that after having consulted with the bishops and having told them to consult with the people of God. So it wasn't just something he did because he felt infallible that day. He consulted. There was a, a, couple, a few years of consultation with each dogma. But, you know, so it's faith and morals addressed to the universal church. And he has to be explicit that it is something he wants to teach. He intends to teach uh, infallibly. So he can't be infallible by mistake. You know, that, that's not the way it works. So the, the, the priest was 
incorrect. He, does, he can't make mistakes. Um, I have no reason to trust the, the uh, a statement by the Pope as to which horse to bet on in a race. For one thing, I don't bet. But, uh, you know, that would never be an infallible statement. <laughs> it can't be. So um, it's very specific, okay? Um, and I don't know, again, whether you go back to him or not. You may not feel comfortable going back to him. But, um, you know, you want to be careful about your criticism to make sure it's something that is truly worth criticizing and is, and is incorrect. You know, you do that very, very carefully uh, with good evidence that, A, you're not just going on what the press said. This is one of the things the Pope complains about. Uh, the press will say that he said something he never said. That happens a lot. And that, that happens all the time to politicians and other people in the media. I've been misquoted. And, uh, sometimes um, the, the press, especially, you know, that there was a kerfuffle about me uh, a couple of years ago, and they're accusing me of racism uh, in one uh, Catholic newspaper. And here's the funny thing. The talk I'd given was about the church's condemnation of slavery. I said, did you hear what I said? And I, it didn't make any sense, but they, some people are just cranky, so that's what they do. Uh, so you got to be careful that it's not what the press said, but what he actually said. you got to check your sources. Um, go to the Vatican website and see, make sure that it's understood. And you want to give the best possible interpretation to what the Pope says, or anybody for that matter. And, but if he, he can make a mistake. Okay? All right. Let's now go to Doug in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Doug, what can we do for you this fine day? Hello, Father. Thank you very much for taking my call. I appreciate it. Sure. Um, that, that my question has to do with the uh, situation with Cain and Abel. Mm -hmm. After Cain had killed Abel, mm -hmm. he was then sent away from his parents, Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. And the Bible tells us that he left and married a woman. So a question that my wife and I have is, where would that woman have come from right. since she was not of Adam and Eve? Right. And do you, did you ever study much anthropology? Honestly, no. Okay. Because there, there was another species that was actually older than Homo sapiens, not one of our ancestors. They're not, you know, they didn't come before, well, they came before Homo sapiens, but they weren't, you know, our ancestors. And that was Neanderthal people. Have you heard of them? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and they, Neanderthals, uh, were around for about 200,000 years before Homo sapiens. Did you know that? Uh, well, I don't remember the exact years, but yes, I, I remember my, my high school, um, I guess that would have been in, in science or history somewhere. So yes, I yeah. do remember that. And, and one of the things that we know now, uh, when I took anthropology, they didn't know this because they didn't really have access to DNA. But 
they have found the remains of people who were part Homo sapiens and part Neanderthal. So there's a baby that was found on Mount Carmel that was half Neanderthal, half Homo sapiens. And there's a teenage boy that was found. He was uh, half Neanderthal, half Homo sapiens. And he, but the other two guys he was hanging out with were both Homo sapiens. And, they, and there is about, depending, especially for European people and some Asian people, about three, maybe as high as 5% of DNA for Caucasian people and some uh, Asian people is from Neanderthal because they, they did uh, uh, mate, they did uh, have children together. So that would seem to be the most likely possibility of non-homo sapiens, but uh, a, a, a species that could have children between homo sapiens and itself. Does that help any? Then that Adam and Eve and then Cain and Abel springing from them were the, were the first of the homo sapiens? Is yeah, that yeah. I see. They're, the, they're the beginning of Homo sapiens, and we don't know, you know, the, a whole lot about uh, Neanderthal uh, civilization. We don't know if they can speak or not, but they probably could because they had voice boxes, and they right. played musical instruments. Uh, they found a flute, you know, in the Neanderthal site uh, in um, uh, Gibraltar. Okay. So this is something that, uh, you know, they uh, were, were a species that could mate with humans. And part of God's uh, creation, definitely part of God's well, yes, creation. Yes, absolutely. I so, can see that. And they, they had villages. They had, mostly they were right. hunters, gatherers, and they traveled around, but they had little villages and, they, and assemblies together. That I, I remember. So they were... Uh, the I guess the inter intermediary between Cro-Magnon and Homo well, sapiens. no, they, they're, 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 that's another that's another issue. You know, they're not they're, they're different species, but you could um, uh, have humans and Homo and Neanderthals mate. The, the evidence is now present, uh, and there are a few other examples of. Uh, people were half Neanderthal. They died out about 35,000 B.C. Um, okay. Yeah, but uh, they, they were up around until then. Okay? Very interesting. Thank you, Father. Yeah, you're welcome. All right, we've got to take a break. Uh, and we'll come back in just a couple of minutes, so please stay with us.
Right, so tomorrow at 8 p.m. Eastern Time on EWTN Live, we will be speaking with an author, filmmaker, and speaker, Mr. Don Johnson, about how the Protestant doctrine of sola scriptura, meaning the Bible alone, has created 500 years of doctrinal chaos and sectarian division. And he's someone who comes from that church. He was raised in a church that believed in sola scriptura, only the Bible, no tradition, nothing else. So um, he understands it from the inside and will talk to us about that. And his book is very interesting. So it'll be a good discussion. Okay, so hopefully you'll see you tomorrow. All right, we have another caller on the line. Michael is calling from the great state of Florida. What can we do for you? Hey, good afternoon, Father. Sure. What's up? Um, yeah, I have I have a question. I have um, something that very, I've been very curious about. Mm -hmm. In Matthew, we uh, have the Our Father given to us mm -hmm. when the uh, apostles ask him teach us how to pray. Mm -hmm. In, the, in in Luke, we have a shorter version of the Lord's Prayer, but there's something that jumped out at me, and it was this. He said to them, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. Who are these disciples? Are they the Essenes, and were they praying the Our Father? Mm -hmm. Okay. Did John teach them to pray the Our Father? Okay. Before okay. Jesus even came? Okay. Good question. Couple things. Um, if uh, you are ever interested, you can read all of, uh, in translation, you can read a translation of everything that was found among the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay? Uh, the translator is uh, uh, Geza Vermes, V-E-R-M-E-S. There's an English translation he did of anything that was uh, three or more words. So he took all the little fragments that have three words or more, plus the bigger uh, manuscripts. And you can check for yourself on this too. But there's nothing quite like the Our Father among the Essenes. There's nothing quite like that. So that, and they do have, uh, you know, some of their books that include prayers and such, but nothing quite like that. Now, secondly, secondly, the, um, our Lord, the, the apostles ask the Lord to teach them to pray the way John's disciples did. We know that St. John had disciples. Remember, in the Gospel of St. John, chapter 1, John the Baptist tells two of his disciples to follow Jesus. So they do. And then we also see in the other Gospels, uh, Matthew 11 and the parallels, that after John was martyred, his disciples buried his body. So he had disciples. But when the apostles 
ask the question, teach us to pray as John the Baptist did. It doesn't mean that he was to teach them the Our Father because John the Baptist. It's just that John had told his disciples how to pray following his understanding. But now the apostles are saying, teach us to pray. They saw Jesus pray a number of times, but it's not as if he were teaching them the words John taught. He's teaching his own words. The Our Father is a very, very distinct prayer that comes from Jesus himself. And there's nothing like it anywhere else. Uh, so that's not that the Our Father was from John, but rather John told his disciples to pray. Jesus is asked to teach him to pray, his disciples to pray. And what he taught them was the Lord's Prayer. Okay? So that's what's going on there. All right. Now we have another call from Linda in upstate New York. Linda, what can we do for you? Hi, Father. I have a, I do home health care, and I have a client who's from, his, his nationality is from India. Uh-huh. We talk about religion occasionally. I usually get kind of frustrated because I, can, I cannot give them the answers I would like to. Mm -hmm. The other day we were talking, and I mentioned about the Old Testament and the Jews being slaves. And he said that was not true and that there is no history or anything to prove it. And I disagreed with him, but I would like to be able to come back to him and give sure. him some information that I know you probably have. Okay. All right, a couple things. First, we know that uh, it, from Egyptian records, going back to about uh, uh, 1790 B.C., um, at the, if you look up this name, Beni, and that's B-E-N-I, not like in Jack Benny, B-E-N-I, Hassan, H-A-S-A-N, Benny Hassan tomb. You'll see uh, tomb drawings of people coming from the land of Canaan to Egypt. And there is evidence of them coming into Egypt over the next couple hundred years. And you also see at the Fayum Oasis, the Fayum Oasis, which is on, uh, to the west of the Nile, uh, that they mention how Apiru, that is Hebrews, were their slaves. We also see that the Israelites, uh, the evidence that they were not in the land of Canaan, but then right around 1240, 1250, 1240 in that area there, in that period, all of a sudden, a whole new group of people came into the land of Canaan and they left behind a certain type of house that was typical of them. And, so, and, they, and then other Canaanite cities are destroyed, but these new styles 
are built on top of the ruins as well as in the hill country. So there's this new people. And then finally, right around 1205, I don't know if it's 1203 or 1205 or exactly, but Pharaoh Merneptah mentions that he had wiped out the Israelites. Now, obviously, he didn't do it because they're still here. Um, he was fibbing. Um, but uh, he mentions them in the land. They're not mentioned in the land of Canaan, but around 1205, he said he defeated the children of Israel, B'nai Yisrael, and it's on a stele. It's a, it's a huge one. It's about eight feet uh, high, nine feet high. Uh, and their name is toward the bottom there as a people that he defeated. So the, plus the Israelites from the tribe of Levi especially have a lot of Egyptian names. Moses, Aaron, Phineas, uh, Hophni. These are all Egyptian names, not Hebrew names. So there are a lot of that evidence there. So your friend is not looking at the evidence very carefully. All right. I have to look at the evidence of the clock, which is that we're out of time. So may the Lord bless you and keep you, cause his face to shine upon you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. And we can bring you this show and all of our programs only because you remember to keep us in between your gas bill, your electric bill, and your cable bill. Your generosity is what makes it possible for us to pay our bills. Thank you, and God bless you. Thank you.